Welcome to the Cal Poly School of Education podcast, a conversation about what it takes to prepare future teachers for the challenges and opportunities of today's classrooms. I'm Virginia. I'm Tracy. Let's chat. Hey, Virginia. Hey, Tracy. What are we talking about today? Ooh, today we are talking about making connections between what happens in classrooms and what happens in the field during clinical practice. Mm. That's an important one. It is. That is an important one. Um, it's important because candidates often ask our cooperating teachers for opportunities to practice in the field, um, the things that they're learning in their coursework, and it can be really important for cooperating teachers and for university supervisors to have a heads up about what those things are. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you think about it, that's that's the whole idea behind clinical practice, right? Is the opportunity to take what you're learning in your courses and being able to watch it in practice and be able to practice it yourself. So being able to make sure that that connection exists is really important. And we want our cooperating teachers and our university supervisors to feel as informed as possible so that they can help the teacher candidates plan those moments and reflect on those moments effectively. Um, and so that means knowing what's happening in the classes um, in order to be able to facilitate the practice in the field. Yeah, and to be intentional about what sort of supports that can be provided to candidates. Absolutely. Um, but before we launch into that, we should say, again, um, an important caveat is that everything that happens in clinical practice and um, on campus in, at the Cal Poly School of Education is really deeply tied to the expertise and the research of our amazing faculty. Um, and depending on who is teaching a class at any year or in any given quarter, um, some of the elements can change in terms of what a candidate is learning. Um, and so there may be new texts or new projects that are done um, with different instructors. There mm -hmm. may be new theories that different faculty are exposing the students to. Um, and that's really great because it means that our candidates are always at the forefront of learning um, from our faculty experts. But it also means that um, we can't go into too much detail in this podcast about elements that may change from year to year or from class to class. Yeah, I mean, as, the, as our faculty are doing their research, they, there may be a different focus that they're bringing to their classroom or have different assignments. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, the details may change, but the overall structure. Our core value of best practices stays the same in yeah. general. Um, and we should also say the structure, too, is different between multiple subjects, single subject, special education, which are sort of the three focus audiences for this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and because those students go through different learning courses at different times, um, again, there might be a slightly different trajectory to their learning. Um, and the best way to know what that is is to ask the students or ask the faculty um, about what the students are learning at any given time. Yeah, but today we're going to talk about the things that are applicable to all of our candidates in all the programs. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, so the first thing is big picture, um, the courses that our candidates take. Um, in general, you could kind of think of the courses as fitting into some big buckets, just in terms of what the goals of those courses are. Um, so the first type of course, obviously, is clinical practice courses and the seminars that go with them. Um, and so those are units that the candidates get for um, being out in the field. There are fewer clinical practice units at the beginning of their learning and mm -hmm. more clinical practice units, almost entirely just clinical practice units and seminar units. Yeah, almost all of it. <laughs> <laughs> towards the end of their learning because that's where they're spending the most of their time. Um, but that's only a piece of the units that the candidates get. Um, their, their coursework and their course learning is another big chunk. Yes. 
So you can also think of another type of class that our candidates enroll in as being the theory classes. That's not really a strict bucket, um, but there are many classes that candidates enroll in that are more geared toward thinking about theories and history of education and pedagogy. Um, in those classes, candidates will learn about constructivist theory and um, universal design for learning. They'll learn about differentiation and learner differences and theories about social-emotional learning and culturally responsive teaching um, and lots of other different strategies um, and ideas that sort of lay that groundwork and framework for the practical applications that they explore in their, um, in their fieldwork. Another type of class, and we hear the candidates talking about these because that's what they call them, is their methods classes. And so these are really specific to content areas and how to teach that content area. So for multiple subject, they have five different ones. For single subject, they go through a sequence of methods classes for their content area. And then for special education, um, similarly, they have different methods for the different content areas that they'll be teaching in the classroom. And those are really areas where the candidates tend to practice a lot of lesson planning. They tend to learn a little bit more about the California frameworks that are specific to those different content areas. The nice thing about those methods classes is that they're usually taught by a content area expert. So for example, the single subject history methods class is typically taught by a professor from the history department mm -hmm. um, who has teaching expertise, but also has history expertise and can really talk to candidates about the hows and whys of teaching history specifically. And the same is true for any of the other methods classes. Some of those faculty are um, education experts within the School of Education, and some of them are our partners from across campus because they really have that content area knowledge, which we appreciate. Yeah, and those will be the classes where candidates may be receiving assignments of implementing a lesson in the in their field work or, you know, putting together lesson plans um, and having those reviewed. And so that's those would be the courses where those types of assignments are coming from. Yeah, we tend to definitely see that a little bit more. It can happen in the um, seminar classes and in the theory classes too, certainly, because our faculty are always trying to connect what's happening in the class to what's happening in the field. But definitely we see a lot more of that, uh, that lesson planning and um, reflecting on lesson effectiveness. It definitely a lot of it happens in methods and in seminars. And then the last type of class that we should talk about is um, sort of this strand of classes called the research classes. Um, these are specific mostly to our master's degree programs that have a research sequence where candidates are learning um, how to be graduate level sort of researchers. Mm -hmm. um, they learn the action research process. Um, because this is more typical of the master's degree programs, it's mostly in terms of the audience of this podcast going to be the special education teachers who are engaged in an ac action research project. But that doesn't mean the action research-like experiences aren't integrated into sure. other programs also. They very much are. Um, but this can also be something that we definitely see show up in the fieldwork because if you're doing action research, you have to take the action in order to do the research. <laughs> and so we hear our special education teachers and then also like our, our educational leadership and administration or our curriculum and instruction master's degree candidates. Yeah, uh, so it could be some, uh, something that a cooperating teacher is engaged in themselves. And yes. they are enrolled <laughs> in a master's program, they may doing, be doing action research. Absolutely. And partnering with their candidate in some respect, maybe. Yeah. And so with all those different types of classes, um, we tend to see that towards an earlier part of a candidate's experience, they spend more time talking about 
um, sort of theory and those big buckets, um, learning, you know, universal design for learning, social emotional learning, culturally responsive teaching, um, some of those big strategy pieces. And definitely towards the end of their experience, like we said, they spend more time and receive more units for things like seminar and methods. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a strict trajectory that um, is applicable to all programs, but that's sort of a general idea. General. Absolutely. Right, and then it's important to keep in mind for the different programs that single subject and special education, they're a fall through spring cohort. Absolutely. And so, you know, de depending on the time of the year that they'll be in that phase, whereas multiple subject has new can new cohort of candidates starting each quarter. And so looking at time of year may not necessarily be representative of where they are. And so that's why we really use those terms CP1, CP2, and CP3 to refer to where the candidates are because that then determines where they are as, as far as the program and not necessarily where they are as far as timing of the year. Yes, and for the most part, our university supervisors and the cooperating teachers are informed about where a candidate is in their learning trajectory. Like, you know if you're supporting a CP1 or a CP3 candidate. Yes, you do. But sometimes, <laughs> like, an administrator may walk into the room or you may have somebody else coming into the room for collaboration um, in May or June, and it might be important to inform that person that this is actually a CP1 candidate who's at the beginning of their teacher professional development journey. Um, and so that it can just be important to put that out um, explicitly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so during those early phases of um, a candidate's journey to becoming a teacher, there are a few things that fieldwork, cooperating teachers, and supervisors can remember um, in order to be supportive of where the candidate is um, in that journey. So the first one is that in those early phases, um, the candidate is learning a lot about California framework and California standards yeah. um, and the history of education in California. And so this is something where cooperating teachers can be really helpful by being explicit about how that framework and those standards inform the choices that you make in your classroom. Um, you might be planning a lesson um, around you know, the Renaissance, going back to history examples that are my comfort wheelhouse. <laughs> you might be planning a lesson around the, the Renaissance and talking about um, certain Renaissance artists or musicians, and it can be really important to explain to a candidate why um, the pieces that you're choosing to include or the pieces that you're not choosing to include mm -hmm. in that massive topic of the Renaissance, um, how that reflects California standards. Um, and and making that thinking, again, we've, we've talked about this in several of our podcasts, <laughs> making that thinking transparent for the teacher candidate can be a big help early in those early weeks, for sure. Yeah, and something else that we hear from our candidates is wanting to be able to have that experience of going through not necessarily only the frameworks and standards, but being able to look at the adopted curriculum yes. and see how that's laid out and see where those standards are incorporated. And then also they do, our candidates do get experience, you know, planning lessons and even planning units. And something that they share with us is that what they would really like to get more understanding about is how does a teacher plan the entire year? Yeah, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. How do you transition from one unit to the next or maybe use a unit to call upon things that you've talked about in a previous unit? Um, and, and how do you make choices about you know, how many days you can really dedicate to a certain topic given what's happening in a real school environment in a year? Definitely we've heard candidates in our focus groups ask for 
those topics and, yeah. and that support. Yeah, so if there's an opportunity to share with a candidate what your yearly planning schedule looks like, um, or maybe just even talk about what that process is at the school with that, um, with that grade level, just to give them an idea of you know, what does that look like and how, how do you make sure you fit it all in in the amount of time that you have? Yes. The answer for me was always lots of color coding. <laughs> <laughs> And a very big Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> I feel like color coding in spreadsheet is often the answer. That is often the answer for me. That is true. <laughs> um, another thing that you can help um, support teacher candidates with in those early um, those early learning experiences in the field um, is just kind of being aware that something that we talk about with our candidates from day one um, are the importances of learner differences and differentiation, um, mm -hmm. learning how to um, make appropriate modifications and use appropriate instructional strategies when working with emergent bilinguals and when working with students who receive special education services. We don't wait to talk about those topics with candidates until right. later in their teacher journey. We start talking about those topics and putting them out front very early on. In fact, they're even part of the prerequisites for a lot of our courses. Yes. Um, so candidates should be ready to start having those conversations with you as soon as they're in your classroom. Yeah, and so then it's really helpful to be able to share with them right away if there are students in the classroom who are emergent bilingual students or who have special needs or who have an IEP or anything of that sort. And then also to be aware that if there aren't any students in that classroom for them to have that experience working with, I start thinking early of like, okay, where where can I help support them? If Maybe if it's another classroom that they can work with or um, a different um, environment where I know that this candidate can go because they do need to have that experience. Yeah, the, the CTC, the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing, requires that all of our candidates um, receive exposure to schools that, um, number one, embrace the California framework and standards and show what that curriculum looks like, and then number two, also expose our candidates to the full range of California's diverse learners. So that includes language diversity, socioeconomic diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. um, first generation students, migrant students, foster care, all of those pieces. Um, students should have that exposure. And so if our candidates um, don't have the opportunity in your classroom, like Tracy said, to get all of that, um, that range of experience, then it's really important to make arrangements for them to maybe go visit another teacher's class for a day and mm -hmm. see what is happening that's really awesome in another classroom. Yeah, and I think the bottom line there is that for Cal Poly, you know, our job and our goal is to really make sure that the candidates who leave our program are prepared to teach any place in California. And so the best way we can do that is that we can make sure that they have experience teaching students um, in these different populations so that way we can feel confident yeah. when we send them out into the world wherever they're applying wherever they get hired we yeah. can say yes they will be amazing there and so we would say don't be afraid to have those equity and inclusion conversations with the candidates early on um, you know we know maybe the candidates won't be doing a lot of upfront teaching to the whole class in those early days but they will be interacting maybe with your students one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. or doing some yeah. small group lessons and that's already an, an opportunity where candidates should be thinking about um, you know how am I thinking about this learners needs um, in terms of their language needs or their learning needs or their social emotional needs um, what biases am I maybe demonstrating in my interaction with these students mm -hmm. those are things that we want our candidates to be um, mindful of even in those early months Absolutely. of their teaching experience for sure. And then building off of that, 
Um, the idea of um, literacy across the content areas, that is definitely something that we talk about with candidates, even beginning very early in their teacher education journey. Again, it's part of prerequisites yeah. um, or coursework in all of our programs. Um, and so regardless of what your content area is or what, um, what grade level you may be working with candidates in, um, talking to them about what literacy looks like in your classroom and how you build academic literacy with your students is really important. Yeah, absolutely. So then transitioning from that early part yes. of the program towards then the later part of the program, um, what would you say are the things that are different about what a cooperating teacher or a supervisor could have at the front of their mind as ways to support candidates who are in the later stages of their Yeah, program. I think the big thing towards the later stages, at least in terms of how I think about it, is just the idea of variety, right? Yeah. Every teacher has a toolbox, and so the more that teacher candidates have the opportunity to try all of the different tools that are out there, <laughs> um, the better. And so providing lots of opportunities and challenges for candidates to integrate new methods and strategies. Um, there are a lot of methods that we introduce candidates to because they are in the TPEs, the, um, the early teacher performance expectations. Um, like for example, something that a cooperating teacher might not expect is that all of our candidates and all of our programs are exposed to the idea of visual and performing arts integration, Yeah. right? And depending on your content area or your grade level expertise, that might not be something that you think about every day. It's probably something you're integrating without realizing it because you are a master teacher and you're fabulous. <laughs> but it might not be something you're explicitly thinking about needing to work with a teacher candidate on, but all of our teacher candidates have some exposure to the idea of how to meaningfully integrate um, visual and performing arts. And so giving them the opportunity to test out those ideas is really important. Yeah, I, I see it as like, this is a time to really get creative. Yes. Of like, okay, here's the lesson, here's the standard. Okay, how can we incorporate technology here? How can we bring in, you know, like you just mentioned, visual and performing arts? How can we bring in social emotional learning? Um, is there a differentiation that needs to happen? For sure. Yeah, and I think that piece about practicing differentiation is especially important. Um, in my mind, that's one of those things that really separates master teachers who are ready to serve all students. Mm -hmm. um, and so it takes a lot to learn how to be managing maybe three different activities at one time or um, a lot of different you know, modifications and adjustments. And so the more you can give the teacher candidates opportunities to practice that kind of very sophisticated, um, what we will call teacher juggling, <laughs> um, those yeah. are really good opportunities for them. Um, and a great place to look for inspiration around those pieces to practice can be reading the clinical practice observation rubric that all of our candidates are evaluated on and looking at what do the level four practices say, right? Because by that point in um, their teacher learning journey, they've probably, hopefully, been scoring some threes. Um, and so they might be ready to start pushing some of their teaching practices to that next level and getting a little more, as you said, creative and experimental um, with what some of what they do and trying to find that groove that yeah. works for them and which strategies in that toolbox work for them. Yeah, and not that we expected our candidates should be scoring fours or are living nope. in that space, but Absolutely that is not. definitely the place to be looking towards as the aspiration. Yes, of and like, to start trying there's, some things. There's the ideal, how do I make sure I keep some of those things in my mind? Absolutely. Um, and um, another important thing we should say for um, cooperating teachers and university supervisors to just be mindful and be supportive of throughout the journey is that at some point for each candidate, 
EdTPA, which is the um, teacher performance assessment, um, the nationwide sort of examination that requires mm -hmm. video collection and reflection writing. Um, that is something that is required of all of our multiple subject and our single subject candidates. Um, and the state has announced that there will be also an EdTPA for special education yeah, candidates. I was going to say soon to be. Soon spend. to be, yes. Um, and so all of our candidates need to collect samples of student work, they need to collect video, and they may need multiple exemplars to be prepared in case they have to participate in a retake or maybe they want some of those exemplars for their portfolio and mm -hmm. you can't use things like that once they've been used for EdTPA. Um, so providing time and space for our candidates to collect those materials is another way that cooperating teachers um, and university supervisors can support their what they're doing in courses um, and what they're doing um, outside of the clinical practice experience through the clinical practice experience. Right, and candidates do get a lot of support from faculty and in their courses for EdTPA, but it is just also one of those things to keep in mind for the cooperating teacher and supervisor that while the candidate is working on that, there's a really good chance that they do not have the bandwidth or capacity for much yes. else. <laughs> <laughs> it, can be, it can be, even if it's um, not um, the most daunting process, it's just still stressful. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that's on their minds, definitely, that can, you know, it's that, it's that social emotional responsiveness that you can yeah. show to your candidate <laughs> in that moment. Absolutely. You're already operating at an elevated stress level. Yes. <laughs> Um, so all of these things, all of this juggling, we, we acknowledge that it can sound like a lot to create space for teacher candidates to try all of these new strategies in your classroom, um, and that can be a stretch. Um, Nancy Stouch, one of our faculty members, often says that being a teacher candidate and trying to you know, do all of these pieces is like going into somebody else's living room and redecorating all the furniture, <laughs> or, um, which is really true. It can, it can be very difficult if you have ways of operating that you know and believe or have tried and true tested with your students mm -hmm. to have a teacher candidate who wants to come in and try some of these other strategies. Um, but we have seen quotes and um, testimonials from cooperating teachers that sort of opening up just a little bit and being a little more flexible to integrating some of these small pieces and small ideas is, a, is you know, great professional development for a cooperating teacher to stay fresh in terms of what's new and um, changing in the field of education. Yeah, for sure, especially when we talk about in those later phases of clinical practice when it's time to get creative, you know, that's a great time for somebody to look to relook at a lesson they've been doing you know, for several years and be like, oh yeah, I wonder if there is a way I could rearrange it to incorporate this. Absolutely. Um, and just kind of get a little bit of that fresh perspective and the, the challenge to yeah. try something a little bit new. And a great way to sort of um, mitigate that feeling of rearranging the furniture in somebody else's living room is to really make it that collaborative process um, where the cooperating teacher and the teacher candidate and even the university supervisor mm -hmm. are co-planning this together and maybe um, working together to identify what new strategy they want to try. Um, and this is where those learning modules that are online can be really helpful because if the teacher candidate and the cooperating teacher watch that module together, they can work together to identify what parts of those new strategies would work for each of their um, comfort levels or what they each bring to the classroom and what would work for those students in that classroom at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking that that really highlights how important communication is between the candidate and the cooperating teacher of being able to say, I have some ideas and, you know, looking at where they are in their program of, 
you know, is it time to maybe say like, okay, well, slow down. (laughs) We'll get there. Yes. Let's do some of this first. Right. Or is it towards the end and be like, okay, like, let's do it. I'm jumping all in with you. Let's do this together. Yeah. And try something really bold. And and after the fact, doing that co-reflecting, right? And that cognitive coaching of going, okay, so what did I notice that tells me this worked? And what did I notice that tells me, no, I wouldn't try this again, Mm -hmm. right? And modeling that for the teacher candidate and also coaching them through that process because those are the real authentic processes that they will do as a teacher. So before we conclude this week, Tracy, is there anything else that you want to mention or suggest? Um, Just that this is really a broad overview around the importance of connecting theory to practice and the classroom to the field. But if anyone is interested in really doing a deep dive into what is included in all of the coursework and what theories and what content is covered when, they can definitely do that on our website. All of the course syllabi and matrices are there and available for cooperating teachers and supervisors to read through if they really have a hankering to know what is my candidate learning right now. They can definitely go online and find that. And also, we're always available, and our faculty are always available to have those conversations. Um, We obviously love to have conversations. That's why we do this podcast. (laughs) So we're here um, and ready to talk about those things. Um, And our faculty would be happy to talk to any cooperating teacher at any time about those things as well. Absolutely. Um, So we hope you will check out the show notes um, and the SOA website for any additional resources. We'll be sure to put in links um, this week to where you can find those matrices and syllabi online and also to the clinical practice observation rubric where you can look at those level four indicators for exceptional practice. Um, Also remember that we support lots of workshops and professional development opportunities um, that cooperating teachers and university supervisors are always welcome to attend if they want to learn more about these topics or others. Um, And send us your feedback to let us know if you enjoyed this episode (laughs) or what you would like to hear more about in the future episode. As we said, this was a broad overview, but if you feel like this is something where we could really dive deeper into some of these topics, Mm -hmm. um, like culturally responsive teaching or working with emergent bilinguals, um, those are all topics we would love to do deeper podcasts about in the future. Um, And so please let us know what you think we should do deeper podcasts about in the future. Um, But in the meantime, thanks for listening. 